Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we shall begin. Father, it is with humble and grateful hearts that we come before you this morning. It is with, um, I pray that it would be with fear and trembling before you, before your holiness, before your majesty, and at the same time that it would also be with boldness, knowing that we have access to your throne of grace, not in any merit in and of ourselves, but solely through the merits of your Son. We pray now that as we come to your word, that your Holy Spirit would do his work. We trust that your word, your living word, your active word, your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword would lay bare our hearts open before you. And we pray that you would instruct us. We pray that we would be more conformed in the image of our master and that we would serve him faithfully. We pray that your Holy Spirit do his work, that he would convict any here who are lost, convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, convict of the truth of the gospel. We pray for the edification and equipping and building up of the saints for work before you to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, 19 through 31. And so we will, we will read this text, and then I'll give a little bit of background information, and we will work our way back through the passage. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them, 
so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone were to rise from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. This, on many levels, is a graphic, jarring, disturbing passage of Scripture. You will not see this um, preached by Joel Osteen. You will not hear anything about this, read anything about this in uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul or some fluffy cotton candy kind of stuff like that. But uh, I, this is just as much as inspired and authoritative as any of God's Word. Fully inspired, fully authoritative. And though it is jarring, though it is disturbing, I trust that as we work our way through this text, for us as Christians, this is also a very encouraging passage of Scripture to us. Now, for a little bit of context, let's just kind of set the scene here a little and uh, see what is going on, because that will help us to kind of get a bigger uh, picture here and a more accurate view of exactly what is happening. Flip back in your Bible just probably one page to Luke chapter 15. This is to just set the scene. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now all of the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he began to teach them in parables. So as chapter 15 opens, we see a large group of people who had gathered around Christ. Tax collectors, scribes, Pharisees, sinners of every stripe. So a large group of people had gathered around Jesus as chapter 15 opens. But look at the first verse of chapter 16. It says, now he was also saying to the disciples. So as chapter 15 opens, a large group of people had gathered around Christ and he was addressing them all. But as chapter 16 opens, Jesus turns his attention away from the crowd and now he is addressing only the disciples. He's no longer addressing the scribes and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners. Now he's only talking to his disciples as chapter 16 opens. But look at verse 14. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of what? Money. Were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at him. So even though Jesus had turned his attention away from the crowd to the disciples... Notice who never left the scene. The Pharisees were still there. In the background, eavesdropping, if you will, on what Jesus was saying to the disciples. The Pharisees were still there. They never left the scene. And notice that the text says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Lovers of money. So what Jesus is about to say here would have absolutely scandalized the Pharisees. So let's work our way back through the text. Verse 19. 
Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. The rich man had everything that the world could offer. Notice that it says that he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Now purple was a very difficult color to manufacture 2,000 years ago. Color was, I mean, purple was actually derived from the oil of snails. It was a very labor-intensive color to produce. No big deal today, but it was a huge deal back then. So if someone had an entire garment made out of purple and fine linen, then that was a person of means. This was a wealthy individual. But notice that the text says he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. So apparently, not only did this guy have a single garment made out of purple and fine linen, he had a whole wardrobe full of purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. This guy had everything that the world could offer. This, this was the Elon Musk of the ancient world. Okay, he had everything. Fancy clothes, a whole wardrobe full of them. Undoubtedly a nice palatial home. The choicest food, the best wine. Servants at his beck and call, meeting his every need. Everything that the world could offer, this guy had. He had arrived. This guy had everything that the world could offer. But look at the other man. Verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. The picture here is the exact opposite. The rich man had everything that the world could possibly offer. Lazarus has absolutely nothing. Now let's look at Lazarus's state. It says that this poor man named Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. Notice Lazarus did not go to the rich man's gate on his own. Lazarus was laid there. In other words, Lazarus was crippled. Lazarus could not even move about on his own. Lazarus was picked up and carried and laid at the rich man's gate. And wherever Lazarus was laid, that's where Lazarus stayed. He could not move about on his own, completely helpless, covered with sores, open, oozing, infected, diseased sores. His skin covered with these infected, diseased sores. He was crippled. He was covered with infection, with infected sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. He was crippled, covered with sores, and he was starving. Undoubtedly, Lazarus looked like a skeleton with skin draped over it. Diseased skin at that. This is a jarring painting picture that the Word of God is painting for us. This is disturbing. And then as if it couldn't get any worse, 
to add insult to injury, it says, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And friends, when we read dogs in the New Testament, we shouldn't think about some happy little cocker spaniel. This was not a little, a little frou-frou dog with a little bow in its hair. These were not pets. These were wild dogs. And they were licking his sores, not to comfort him, but to torment him. Lazarus couldn't get away from him because he was crippled. This is a jarring picture. And notice, too, we have no idea the name of the rich man. We don't know what he was named. But we do know the name of the poor man, Lazarus. And Jesus includes his name for a very specific reason. Lazarus is, the name Lazarus means something. It is derived from the name Eleazar, which means God helps. God helps. That's what the name Lazarus means. God helps. Now, I'm not going to uh, ask you to raise your hand if you think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. Um, I think most of us in, in this church probably know that it's not. Uh, it's not in the Bible. A lot of people who profess to be Christians think that it is, but it's, it's not there. One night I was watching, um, there's a, a media personality in the United States named Bill O'Reilly, and he used to have a show on Fox News. And, and uh, Bill O'Reilly one night was interviewing some priest on his program, and Bill O'Reilly said, my favorite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. Well, not only is that not in the Bible, it's not even a biblical concept. Friends, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who understand that they cannot help themselves. Just as helpless as Lazarus was physically, we are that helpless spiritually. Lazarus could do nothing for himself. Lazarus was completely dependent upon the mercies of others for survival. Completely dependent upon others. And dear ones, you and I are completely dependent upon the mercies of God. There is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to ingratiate ourselves as sinners, as rebels against God who is thrice holy. There is no amount of good works that we can do to earn our way into heaven. And yet I guarantee you, if you were to go out on the streets of your hometown and go up to a hundred people at random and ask them, are you a good person? I promise you 99, if not a hundred of them would say, yes, I'm a good person. And most of us think of ourselves as good because what we like to do is we like to compare ourselves to other people. And if I were to compare myself to Saddam Hussein, Benito Mussolini, Pol Pot, Hitler, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good old boy. I've, you know, I'm, I've never done any of those things. But dear friends, God does not evaluate our goodness by comparing us to other people. He evaluates our goodness by comparing us to himself. And none of us compared to God is good. And yet almost everyone out there who has some 
uh, general belief in heaven, they'll say, well, yes, when I die, I'll go to heaven because, you know, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and God will accept me and, and I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. There is only one who is good. That is God. That's what Jesus told the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. You remember Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler ran up to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked at him and said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Jesus was not correcting him. Jesus was leading him. Jesus was saying to this rich young ruler, he was saying, okay, you call me good, but why? Why do you call me good? Do you call me good because you think I'm a nice person and I teach some good stories and I, I do some good things for people? Is that why you call me good? Or do you call me good because you understand that there is only one who is good, that is God, and I am God. He was not correcting him. He was leading him. You call me good, but do you know why? Do you understand what you're saying when you say that? Because I am good. Because I am God. There is only one who is good. Dear friends, you and I are all bad people. We have all sinned against a thrice holy God. We have broken his laws thousands of times over the courses of our lives. All of us are liars. Thou shalt not lie. Every single person in here has told lies and many of them. Let God be true and every man a liar. If you've even told just one lie in your life, you're a liar. But all of us have told untold numbers of lies. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't let yourself off the hook too quickly. Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. If you've ever looked at another person with lust, you're an adulterer. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And taking God's name in vain is a lot more than simply saying OMG or some derivative of that. We take God's name in word and in deed. We have broken God's laws thousands of times. And just like when you break laws here on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God? And because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And if we die in our sins, we will very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. And there is no amount of good works that we can do to overcome the debt that our sin has incurred. Our works are as filthy rags before a thrice holy God. Lay your works down. They will profit you nothing. You cannot help enough little old ladies across the street to earn your place into heaven. You cannot work at the soup kitchen or some you know, charitable organization. You cannot do that and earn your way into heaven. That is an insult to God. 
to even think we could do that. There is only one who is good, and that is God. Lazarus was completely helpless physically. You and I are completely helpless before a thrice holy God, completely dependent upon Him and His mercies. Verse 22, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Dear friends, death is the great equalizer. It does not matter who you know or who knows you. It does not matter on which side of the tracks you were raised. That's, I don't know if that translates here in Finland's expression. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. Death will come to us all. Death is an appointment we will all one day meet. Death will come to us all. It is appointed man once to die and then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. None of us is getting out of this thing alive. We're all going to die. No surprise when Lazarus died, right? I mean, Lazarus was at death's door anyway. He was crippled. He was poor, sick, diseased, starving, tormented by wild animals. No surprise when Lazarus died. But apparently... The rich man also died at about the same time. At about the same time. Undoubtedly, death came as quite the surprise to the rich man. Because the rich man was living it up. He was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Life was good for the rich man. But apparently, death came to him, too, at just about the same time. Quite the surprise to the rich man. Dear friends, death is an appointment that you and I will all one day meet. And sometimes, that appointment can come at the most unexpected of times. We don't know when that appointment is coming for us. But it's coming and for some of us, it may come an awful lot sooner than what we ever dreamed. Not a single person in here is guaranteed to see tomorrow morning sunrise. When that appointment comes for you, you need to be ready. Be ready because you do not know when that appointment is coming. Now, undoubtedly, when the rich man died... Very nice funeral. Undoubtedly, there were a lot of important people there. The who's who of that day and age were there. Undoubtedly, he had a very nice, ornate funeral. His body was well cared for, anointed with various oils and spices and wrapped in some very nice linen, probably some fancy speeches given at the rich man's funeral. And his body was laid in a nice, ornate tomb that only the rich could afford in that day and age. So undoubtedly, very nice funeral for the rich man. Lazarus, however, he had no fancy funeral. There were no important people at Lazarus's death. Undoubtedly, what happened to the body of Lazarus is the same thing that happened to all of the bodies of the dead who were poor and diseased at that day and age. 
Undoubtedly, Lazarus' body was picked up and carried and dumped outside of the city gates in a pile of refuse garbage to be consumed either by fire or wild animals or some combination of all of that. No fancy funeral for Lazarus. No important people there when Lazarus died. No fancy speeches given. But notice in the text, notice who his pallbearers were. Does that translate here in pallbearers? Is that what? Coffin carriers? Okay. Notice who his coffin carriers were, his pallbearers were. It says that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Carried away by the angels. You know, friends, one of these days when death comes for me, when my appointment with death comes and I have a funeral, I don't really care what is said at my funeral. I really don't care. I don't care what will be said about me or what won't be said. I don't care. The only thing that I would ask is that the gospel be preached. Beyond that, I don't care what happens at my funeral. But you know what? I want these pallbearers. I want these coffin carriers. I want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And I want to hear those words, well done. Well done. Good and faithful. Doulos. I want these pallbearers. And I want to hear those words from my Savior. Dear ones, you want to have these pallbearers. You want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And you want to hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master's kingdom. The only way to hear those words is to place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his son to this earth and Jesus lived Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth, a perfect life to the perfect satisfaction of God, the God-man. And Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken, he gave it. And on the cross, this perfect person offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God. The full undiluted fury of God's wrath was poured out on his precious son who knew no sin, but he was made sin for us. God treated him as though he were a sinner, even though not for one millisecond was he ever a sinner, but God treated him as though he were. Our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. And Jesus died on the cross, satisfying God's righteous wrath that burns against sin. 
three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And the only way to have the wrath of God removed, the only way to know that one day when your appointment with death comes, that you will hear those words, well done. The only way to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom is to repent of your sin, turn from it, and place your trust in Jesus. And then you will hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful slave. Verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Pardon me one second. This is a condemning verse of scripture for the rich man. This is a condemning verse of scripture. It says in Hades, this is, this is the lake of fire, the lake of fire that once the events of Revelation 21 happen will become hell with the capital H, but it's, it's a, a distinction without a great deal of difference because they're described in many of the same ways. In the lake of fire, he woke up and lifted up his eyes and being in torment saw Abraham far away, Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people when they die in their sin apart from Christ. Do we really believe that they go to this place? Dear friends, we should not soft-pedal hell. We should not soft-pedal hell. I've heard so many preachers say that if you die in your sin, then you'll be eternally separated from God. That's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. Do you know what the most terrifying thing about hell is? God because he's there, he's omnipresent. He is there in his wrath. People in hell are separated from God relationally. There is no relationship there between God and those who are condemned. There is no fellowship there, there is no love exchange there. They are separated from God relationally, but judicially, judicially, People in hell are in the presence of God for all of eternity. Read Revelation chapter 14. Those who are in the lake of fire, it says they will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
the full undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out on the wicked for day and night, forever and ever. The smoke of their torment will rise up. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. The worm will not die. The fire will not be quenched. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people when they die in their sin. Do we really believe that they go to this place? And if we do, why are we not out there? Why are we not out there more in the highways and the hedges telling people how to escape this place? Why do so many, the vast majority, vast, vast majority of people who claim to be Christians hardly ever share the gospel? Why is that? Do we really believe what we say we believe? And if we do, dear friends, we should be telling people how to escape this place. But notice also in the text, he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, that is a condemning admission from the rich man. Notice that he had somehow had this ability to see across this great chasm. And he saw Abraham, recognized him, called him by name, and gave him a title of respect. Father Abraham. So what does that tell us? That tells us that this was not some atheist. This was not someone who didn't believe in God. This was a religious man. This was a, this was a Jew. This was a man who had been taught the scriptures. He knew the word of God. Father Abraham. He had a head full of knowledge. Dear friends, I am the first one to encourage people to read and study God's word, study doctrine, study theology, deepen your knowledge of God, because it is only when our knowledge of God is deepened that our love for God will be deepened. Do all of these things. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Do all of these things, absolutely. Just make sure that in your studying, that that head knowledge, make sure that that head knowledge has penetrated your heart. There will be a lot of religious people in hell. In fact, the great majority of people in hell will be religious. John MacArthur has said uh, there will be a lot of theologians in hell. Indeed. There's going to be a lot of theologians in hell. There's going to be pastors in hell. Make sure that head knowledge has penetrated your heart. This guy had a lot of head knowledge, but his head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. Why? Because not only did he recognize Abraham, who else did he recognize? Lazarus. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. So it's not that the, Abraham, that the rich man didn't know that Lazarus had been laid at his gate. Oh, he knew it. He knew it all right. He knew Lazarus was there. Not only did he know it, he even knew his name. 
and he would not lift his finger to help Lazarus while they were on earth. But now you see, he wants Lazarus to lift his finger, dip it in water, and touch his tongue to help him. And notice that the fires of hell bring about no repentance. No repentance. Because the rich man said nothing to Lazarus. Didn't even address him. No, Lazarus, I'm sorry. Lazarus, please forgive me that I did nothing for you on earth. I'm so sorry, Lazarus, please forgive me. Nothing about that. Not a hint of apology to Lazarus. In fact, even now, Lazarus is nothing more than his errand boy. Abraham, send Lazarus. The fires of hell do not bring about repentance. This man had nothing more than a worldly sorrow over his sin. Remember we talked about that last night. A worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow that leads to death. He did not have the godly sorrow over sin. The godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto salvation. He had none of that. No repentance. No fruit. No godly sorrow. He was... He cared about no one but himself. A worldly sorrow leads to death, but a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. This man had a worldly sorrow. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. The great reversal. Death was the great equalizer, and now we see the great reversal. The rich man had everything that the world could offer on earth. Lazarus had nothing, and now everything is reversed. Lazarus is being comforted in Abraham's bosom. Euphemism for heaven. And the rich man languishing in the lake of fire. For all of eternity. The great reversal. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Dear friends, once death comes to us and we meet that appointment, each and every one of us will go to one of two places. And we will be there for all of eternity. There is nothing in the middle. There are no second chances. There is no such thing as purgatory. That is a fabrication of the Roman Catholic Church. It does not exist. We will go to one of two places. And we will be there for all of eternity. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. Again, Lazarus is still nothing more than his errand boy. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
Finally, I suppose you could say that the rich man is finally thinking about somebody besides himself. He says, I have five brothers. So warn, take send Lazarus so that he can go to my father's house and, and warn my five brothers that they will not also come to this place of torment. So apparently, had Lazarus come back from the dead and gone to his father's house to warn his five brothers, apparently, reading between the lines here a little bit, the five brothers would have also recognized Lazarus. So it's not looking real good for the five brothers either. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's a surprising statement. Abraham said to the rich man, no, I don't need to send Lazarus to your five brothers. Your five brothers have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. Well, Moses and the prophets had been dead for centuries. How could his five brothers possibly hear Moses and the prophets? This is how. This is how they hear Moses and the prophets. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have the scriptures. Let them hear them. And then the rich man said, but no, Father Abraham, that's not enough. But if they could just see someone come back from the dead, then they'll believe, then they'll repent. That'll get their attention. If they can just see Lazarus come back up from the dead, that'll get their attention, Father Abraham. That'll make them believe. That'll make them repent. And Abraham said, if they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe, even if someone were to come back from the dead. Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Not in miracles, not in signs and wonders. And yet we've got this whole swath of professing Christianity out there, the signs and wonders movement, the new apostolic reformation, word faith, all of that. They, and they think that the power of God is in miracles and signs and wonders. That's the power of God. And they claim to have these signs and wonders in their churches and in their ministries. We saw the other day, uh, Todd White going around and lengthening people's legs by a half an inch. That's not a sign and a wonder. It's a wonder to me how anybody could be so foolish as to believe it. It's not the power of God. It's a parlor trick. Oh, we have angel feathers falling out of the sky in our services. We have gold dust that shows up in our Bibles and gold dust on our hands and and. Uh, there for a while, I guess it's still around, but there for a while, charismatics were claiming that God was turning their tooth fillings into gold. Ooh. That's the power of God. It's not the power of God. That's stupid. I mean, if God was going to turn your tooth filling into gold, I mean, forget about turning my tooth fillings into gold. Just heal my tooth. You know, heal my stupid tooth. Forget about a gold filling. Just heal my tooth. These are lying signs and wonders. And the charismatic movement is rife with this stuff. 
And that's the emphasis. That's all of their emphasis on dreams and visions and signs and wonders, and they think that's the power of God. Do you know what all of that is? Number one, it's deception. But you, number two, do you know why the charismatic movement has such an emphasis on signs and wonders? Because, and John MacArthur has described it this way, the charismatic movement is doubt looking for proof. Doubt looking for proof. Because deep down in the minds and the hearts of the vast majority of charismatics, they're riddled with doubt. They're riddled with doubt. And so they're constantly seeking after the next sign, the next wonder, the next big thing. Go from experience to experience to experience, miracle to miracle to miracle. And it's all this dramatic stuff. It's doubt looking for proof because they're not really satisfied with the gospel. Most of them don't even know the gospel. So it's, it's a constant hamster wheel of seeking after the next big thing. And they're trying to satiate the doubts that they have. And then there's this whole other swath of professing Christianity that's not into the signs and wonders so much, but they're into more of what we call the seeker-sensitive approach to doing church, the market-driven approach to doing church. Seeker-friendly. We're going to make church fun. We're going to make church entertaining. And we're going to make our church look like the world so we can attract the world. The world will come in to our churches and we're going to have the strobe lights and the disco balls and the lasers and the smoke machines and all this. And we're going to have worldly music. We're going to make our music uh, appeal to the lost world out there. And we're going to, you know, do rock songs and all this kind of stuff. We're going to make church fun. We're going to make church entertaining. And we're not going to talk about sin much because the world doesn't want to hear about sin. We're not going to talk about repentance because people don't like that. Uh, we're not going to talk about taking up the cross and denying yourself. Well, no, we're going to make it all about you. We're going to talk about how Jesus can give you a better, happier, more comfortable life. And he'll help you to have better relationships. And uh, he'll help you to have a better job and a nicer car. And he'll, he'll help you to lose weight the Jesus way. And then Jesus will just do all these things for you. We're going to cater to the world. And some of these same preachers, if you were to ask them, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we believe that. Well, they may say they believe it with their lips, but I can tell you by how they do church and how they preach that they don't really believe it. Because if they did, they would understand that church is not about the world. That church is not about the goats. Church is about the sheep worshiping the shepherd. They would understand that the true power of God is the gospel. That's the power of God. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. What is the true power of God? The gospel is. 
That's the power of God, the gospel. And every few years we have some new fad that comes down the evangelical pike. Every few years, something new. About 20 years or so ago, it was The Passion of the Christ. Remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie? And um, I don't know how popular it was here in Finland, but in the States, it was just wildly popular in the United States. Oddly, far more popular amongst evangelicals than it was amongst Roman Catholics. And Mel Gibson is a Roman Catholic, and he made it for Catholics, and Catholics didn't really respond to it very much. But boy, the evangelicals did. They just loved it, ate it up. And I heard people describe that movie as, oh, it's the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Dear friends, I would submit to you that this book is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time, not some dopey movie. And then for a while, it was the prayer of Jabez. Everybody was praying the prayer of Jabez. Anybody here tonight, today, still praying the prayer of Jabez? No, of course not, because it was a fad. And that shows that there is a rampant dissatisfaction amongst so many Christians who profess to be Christians, a rampant dissatisfaction with the Word of God. But for us as sheep, this is our food. This is our nourishment. This is what we live on. This is what we stand on. This is what we believe. This is the power of God unto salvation. If you want to see the power of God unleashed, take this book out into the highways and the hedges. Share the gospel with people. That's the power of God. I suppose every preacher has a, an airplane story. And I've heard a lot of airplane stories, and I've got a number of them myself. You know, people I've talked to on airplanes or in airports. But one of them that stands out in my mind was several years ago. It's probably been eight or nine years ago now. But uh, I was on a flight somewhere. I don't even remember where I was going. But um, because of my handicap, they usually let me pre-board on the plane, so I go on first and uh, just to kind of get settled and get out of everybody's way. And um, so they let me pre-board. And on this flight, my seat was the very last seat in the back of the plane, last row, way in the in the tail by the bathrooms. And um, it was an aisle seat. And so I was sitting there and the stewardess helped me get my crutches and put them in the overhead bin and you know, put on my seatbelt. And so I'm just sitting there and right after that, then all, the other passengers start coming onto the plane. And so I just kind of casually was watching people come on the plane and I looked down the aisle and I see this old man coming down the aisle and he's, he's kind of hunched over, he's got a cane, and he's making his way down the aisle. And then I noticed as he got a little bit closer that he was wearing a navy blue baseball cap, what we call baseball cap. And on the front of the hat in big gold letters, WWII veteran, World War II veteran. And I've always had a bit of an interest in history and so I saw that old man coming down, World War II veteran, and, and I just said a quick prayer. I said, Lord, please let him sit next to me. And wouldn't you know it, he came all the way down that aisle, 
his seat was right next to mine. I actually, uh, when I realized that, I undid my seat belt and I kind of scooched over to the, to the next seat so he wouldn't have to climb over me. So he took the uh, aisle seat and he got his stuff put away and whatever and got settled a little bit. And, and then I introduced myself. I, I, said, I said, good morning, my name is Justin. I said, what's your name? And so we shook hands and he said, hi Justin, my name is Fred. And I said, well, it's nice to meet you, Mr. Fred. And, and he said, nice to meet you. And so we made a little bit of small talk. And, and then I said, Mr. Fred, I noticed from your hat that you're a World War II veteran. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, where were you? Were you in the Pacific Theater, the European Theater? And he said, I was in Europe. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, my grandfather was as well. My mom's dad was in, in the European Theater. And so we got to talking a little bit, and he started telling me some of the things that he experienced. Turns out he was in combat, in the infantry, was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he was telling me about some of the things that he had experienced, what combat was like. He told me of being in battle and hearing the explosions going on around him, being in a trench with the bullets zinging over his head. And after a while of listening to him tell me some of those stories, I said, Mr. Fred, I, I bet it made you wonder what would have happened to you if one of those bullets had had your name on it. And he said, he said yes, Justin, I, I did wonder. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, one of these days we're all going to die. I said, when that time comes for you, do you know where you're going to go? And he said, no, Justin, I don't. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, may I share with you what God's Word has to say about that? And as long as I live, I'll never forget his response. He said, and I quote, I wish you would. And so for the next few minutes, I shared the gospel with him. I told him how we are all sinners. We have broken the laws of God. And because we have sinned against God, our sins have earned us hell, the penalty of our sins, the wages of sin is death. And I told him, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I told him who Jesus was and is, what he did on the cross, that this perfect man, the God-man, willingly laid down his life on the cross. And Jesus took the punishment of our sins upon himself, satisfied God's wrath, died on the cross, three days later bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And I said, Mr. Fred, if you will repent of your sin, turn from sin and place your trust in Christ, he will save you. And I said, your works will not save you. Our works are as filthy rags. I said, but if you'll trust Jesus and him alone, he will save you. And I asked him, I said, um, Mr. Fred, do you have any questions? Does this make sense? And, and he did have a couple of questions, and so I answered those. And I said, well, does this make sense, Mr. Fred? And he, he, said, he said, yes, it does. He said, he said Justin, I want to thank you for sharing that. He said, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. I mean, this man was a man at the time in his mid-80s at least, if not upper 80s, 
living in the United States of America, I've never heard that before. Turns out he told me he was Catholic. Oh, he had heard about Jesus, you know, but he had never heard the gospel in all of his years in a Catholic church, never heard the gospel. No surprise. And, and he said, Justin, I want to thank you. And then the lady in the seat in front of us, she kind of turned her head back like this. And she said, and I want to thank you too. I was listening. <laughs> I was listening to every word you said. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's word is sufficient. It is everything that we need. It is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. If they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe, even if someone were to come back from the dead. As I close, have, when that time comes for you, do you know where you will go? Will you find yourself in the lake of fire? Or will you be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom? If you will repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in Christ, one day when your appointment with death comes, you will be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And you will hear those words, Well done my good and faithful slave. Well done. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as your children, as lost sheep, that the shepherd has so kindly and so graciously called to himself. How our hearts yearn to one day hear those words. Well done. Well done. We thank you that that promise is ours. We thank you that one day we have the assurance of living with you for all of eternity, unencumbered by sin, being in awe of our Savior, basking in His glory for all of eternity, worshiping Him. We thank You that that is our inheritance, that Christ Himself is our inheritance. He is our reward. Father, as Your gospel has been preached, if there are any here who have not yet been called to the shepherd, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would do that even now would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, convict of the truth of the gospel, grant faith in repentance. All for the glory of Christ our King. I ask your blessings on this church. Use her for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.